AI is in the news, and it should be. Um, it's a few weeks ago now that uh, I first tried it out. And for me, I was pleased with the test I gave to AI because they both failed and passed, if you see, rather paradoxically. I had just finished uh, one of my regular articles for the CMDA magazine, and uh, Sally had downloaded, what is it, uh, GP Chat or whatever it's called, I can't remember. Uh, and I thought, hmm, that's interesting. So I gave it my name, and I gave it uh, the title of what I had just written, and looked to see what it would produce. And uh, what it produced was very interesting. It was quite good, except that he'd had a tin ear for anything that might be called transcendent. He couldn't handle transcendence. Uh, now, it'll get better at using the word, but that won't mean that it knows what it means because it doesn't know anything. Uh, but it, it was a very interesting experience because, of course, uh, artificial intelligence doesn't think, so in one sense it's not intelligence at all. Uh, it's just an algorithm running on a large amount of material. They've got plenty to find about me, so it can't be that they didn't know what I talk about. It's just that built into it in some way, which I don't yet understand, uh, was you know this relative inability to um, to deal with what's at the heart of what I do, because I don't come at it directly, I come at it indirectly. So that was interesting. And now I started looking around a bit more and thinking about it. And uh, in a way, I, I'd seen some of the problems a long way back. Um, I've been bothered about the university, and particularly the university's grading system, uh, all from the early 90s, in fact, late 80s. Uh, I was aware that this was a bad way to go. It was being taken over by people who thought they knew what they were doing, and they didn't. The first clue for me was when uh, we were told that the basic evaluation in our medical school should be knowledge, skills, and attitudes. Those are the only three categories that matter. Um, that, of course, is um, a disaster, uh, but they couldn't see it. And knowledge, yes, of course, if you can define it. How much knowledge do you need? Clearly, the way we teach medicine, in which a large part of what a medical student has to show competence in, in terms of uh, exam marks is never going to be subsequently used. It's not ordered towards the needs of medicine. It's ordered towards the ideas of educators and what they call knowledge. Well, we can talk about that a bit more in a moment. Uh, skills, yes, that, that would uh, that's very difficult to evaluate too, uh, except one physician watching another one or one surgeon watching another one knows within seconds how good they are at their job. But they can't tell you how they know. So the educators can't get at what we recognize immediately. But the educators demand that they should control accreditation. It's a racket. It's a scam. They can't do what ought to be done, and we've known that for at least 30 years, or at least some people have known. 
and we haven't fought back. But the worst one, of course, is attitudes. Uh, that would mean that a method actor who can uh, make you feel she's a saint one day and a whore the next would absolutely ace attitudes because that they are simply modeling what they think the patient needs or what the patient thinks they need. The emphasis being on pleasing the patient, not thinking about the patient's good. Uh, attitudes, nonsense. There are lots of people who can do that. We, we, again and again and again, we see it everywhere. Uh, in, uh, in all professional areas, sports, entertainment, even the pastorate. Uh, a pastor who models empathy for his community when he doesn't really care for them that much anyway and is himself not under control. It shows in the end, doesn't it? But it would have shown a lot, e a lot earlier if we had ditched the modern way of looking at things and instead of asking, uh, where did you get your degree? Uh, how, what grades did you get? Uh, and then going on and looking at the content of their sermons to see whether they were solidly orthodox. And when we come in the pastorate to uh, the questions we now answer subjectively in terms of, oh, he's a nice person, he's, he relates to people very well, he can uh, persuade people, etc. None of those things matter. Go to 1 Timothy 3 and read it through and check off that list. If he's not the husband of one wife, don't hire him. Divorce means the end of your job. You can be forgiven. You can come to church, but you cannot lead. Uh, character is what it's about. That's why the black community doesn't like Martin Luther King, because he said, I wish not to be judged by the color of my skin, but by the quality of my character. Uh, we forgot. So this is happening everywhere in the educational system. Now, I was pushed the next step a few years later, and I'm sure I've told this story before, but it bears repeating. Um, when invigilating the Christmas exam, uh, it came round to be my turn one year, you know, multiple courses being examined in the gym. So I was just there to keep order and try and see that nothing untoward happened. And about oh, less than 10 minutes into the exam, I got a note from the porter saying the university had just received uh, a message saying that there was a bomb planted in the gymnasium complex. Yeah. Obviously, it was likely to be a scam, but you, you, you have to take these things seriously because if it turned out to be not a scam and you'd done nothing, that really would be a disaster for everyone, including yourself. So I uh, got the student's attention and said, now leave your papers on the desk, but take your bags and your everything else with you and go for a 20-minute walk because uh, we have received a notification that there's something that security must look for. So go out in an orderly fashion and come back in 20 minutes. And amazingly, they were very orderly and they uh, exits and there was no hysterics or anything like that which was surprising to me 
uh, in retrospect, but I didn't pick it up at the time. I went for a walk too. And I got to the far end of the parking lot. It was December with my coat on, etc. And round the back of an, a pickup was a group of students. And one said to the other, you idiot, you're supposed to memorize the fourth question or whatever it was. And it was obvious that this bomb scare was a scam. It had given the students long enough to look at the questions. And now they had half an hour to talk to one another about the answers and look up anything they wanted to look up. Um, and if there were students who were not involved, they were now at a disadvantage and they were the better students. Um, I told, these happened to be engineers, uh, uh, so I told the prof what I'd heard, uh, but I said I, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised to find all the students know, knew because they went out so quietly. I was sure my students knew. Um, but I didn't know what to do. But I wasn't going to allow my course to be used as a means to get into medical school by cheating. The last thing we want in medicine is a bunch of cheats. So it took a few weeks and slowly I worked out what I had to do. I had to dump information recall exams because... They're so open to cheating. It's, and every day that gets more and more possible. Uh, whether it be uh, a, a microphone in their, uh, in their pocket that you can't hear in which they can say something, oh, I wish I knew about X, and into their earpiece comes what they need to know because they're connected. It's easy to do, and... Along the line, all sorts of ways. Once I started looking, I saw it all over the place. So what do you do about that? The, again, the Faculty of Education's uh, accreditation systems all depend upon uh, regurgitating material that they've heard recently because they can't do anything else. So I designed an examination in which I didn't know what the exam would be until 48 hours before the exam. And it would be based on a paper that I had found that week that served my purposes, which was basically, this was a fourth-year honours course in biochemistry, which marks were used to decide your, where you were going career-wise, uh, and a good mark would help you get into medical school. So what I wanted was to see whether they had good minds, whether they could think, whether they could analyze and whether they could plan. Uh, now, the whole course had to change, and uh, the first lecture in the new course uh, really stunned them because uh, uh, what I did was I gave them a paper that said, and said, I want a pricey of this paper in three days' time so that I can... Uh, Read it uh, before, read your pricey before the next lecture. And uh, I talked about how we were going to go about the course and uh, in broad outline. When I got the praces, these were good students. I mean, they hadn't seen a mark below 85 for three years, probably, and mainly around the 90 mark. Uh, they were all the students. Uh, but they, nobody got a mark over 50% on that exercise. Uh, 
I've used it every year since uh, I left the university around 2000, but I use it every year at Augustine as my opening exercise. Um, uh, write me a precy of Ephesians 1, and they give me their idea about what Ephesians 1 is. I've just looked at this year's ones, and I, if the name wasn't on it, I could put the student's name on it. So that's how clearly their personality shows through, which shouldn't happen in a precy. Um, you can imagine what the atmosphere was like when I gave the marks out for the first assignment in my course. And I said, now, calm down. Uh, I know this is a shock to you, and I am not going to keep these marks to use for the final evaluation. This is shock therapy. Uh, you need to learn how to think rather than regurgitate, and that's what I'm going to try and do. And then I gave them my precy, which had taken me half an hour to write probably, they had spent a couple of hours on their summaries, which is what they'd written. And they didn't see the difference to begin with, but they did very quickly. Now, that's where we are with education at the moment. We think that if we can list a curriculum and tick it off and say it's covered all the bases, then we've done our duty. It's a load of rubbish. That's not what we're about. What we're about is real learning. I think best... It, uh, a best, my favourite example of it, because it's so outrageous, comes from Oxford many years ago, uh, when they first uh, looked for a professor of philology, I think it was, it doesn't matter, it was languages and that sort of thing. And the guy who got the job had never been to university, because Oxford was a good, good university in those days. He was actually, he'd grown up in a, a mining village in the north, where everybody went down the pit. Uh, but he'd noticed when he was a young man that one person in the village didn't have to go down the pit anymore and he was teaching every, everybody how to read. Uh, now, well, this kid could do it better than he did. So he started teaching people how to read and write. And he loved what he was doing and he must have been an odd character in many ways. But then he started, he wandered all over Europe and he would go to universities and simply walk into the lectures of people whose work he'd come across. And he was particularly interested in language and philology. Some years later, when he'd wandered around many famous universities, because he would walk into a lecture, he wasn't going to get anything out of it, no marks or anything. He just wanted to hear what the guy was like. And he got back to England, and they were advertising for a professor of philology, and the description of what they wanted was must be capable of speaking multiple languages, which he did with the grace of ease, etc., uh, etc. Et and when they interviewed him, they were smart enough to say, he's better than any others, give him the job. No credentialing at all. Gone on. But it was brilliant. Tolkien followed in his footsteps sometime later, but Tolkien was well-educated from the start. But that's the position he had. Uh, now, that sort of thing is gone now. Now you get people coming along. And I heard it just the other day, uh, again, watching some, I think it was on the Congressional Channel, watching the interviews of idiots that have been uh, proposed for primary positions in the government. And this silly woman said, you can't tell me about education. I got a master's in education. So what would be my response, you know? Uh, appealing to what you are, the degrees you've got instead of what you actually understand. Ridiculous. 
somebody really upstaged one of these uh, applicants <laughs> uh, because he asked a very simple question. What's the percentage of CO2 in the uh, atmosphere? She was head of, uh, what is it, the EPA. She didn't know. There she was, the head of the EPA, whose main objective was to lower CO2 levels in the atmosphere. She didn't know what the percentage was. Uh, eventually, she managed to say, I don't know the percentage, but it's something like 400 parts per million. I mean, she couldn't even play with the, the numbers. I mean, okay, that's 0.04%, but you couldn't do it as a percentage. Unbelievable. And she wasn't fired on the spot, which is what should have done. You're incompetent. Get out. I think you should resign and go and do do a course uh, and see if you can learn something about numeracy. But no, I'm sure she's still there. I don't know. But that's the world we're in. Uh, and it is, it's been growing for a long time. Fortunately, when I went to medical school, the teacher whom I admired most understood these things brilliantly uh, and had a very sharp, sarcastic sense of humor. Um, but the students, that the, especially the smarter end of the spectrum, loved him. And we traveled out to when he did a Friday afternoon clinic, which he did regularly out in the slums of London because he got better medicine there. We went to that clinic and usually got a lift back in his car because there'd only be about three or four of us. Uh, but you learn so much from him. But on one occasion, uh, he got a request to go see a patient in another ward, not his ward. And the ward sister there was a smart woman who was angry. She should have been, she would have made a good doctor had she been allowed to do that, but she wasn't. But uh, she spent all her time making the nurses uh, disrespect doctors whenever she could. That was what she liked doing most. So Prof Dornwals was asked to go and see someone and uh, he's a smart guy and he knew that she'd got something that wasn't yet in the notes and she wasn't going to tell him. Um, and uh, But he saw the patient and uh, wrote his note and uh, then she dropped her what she thought was going to be explosion in the middle and she said, the platelet count is very low. It's just come back. And he looked at her and said, uh, the hematology department is a bit like a supermarket and this week's special is platelets. Good morning. And walked out. Um, and he was right. He knew what he was talking about. He knew what was wrong with the patient and the platelet count was irrelevant. Uh, that's what one needs, somebody who not only knows why they think things, but can use that base to say what must be wrong, and you can go and check if you like. Uh, now, what are the key things that we really need to understand? Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a great privilege to, uh, to be taught by him. Uh, you knew when you went to his clinic, you were going to be asked questions that were beyond you, but uh, you could get you could make an attempt in as rational a manner as possible and you'd be rewarded for that. And uh, if you happened to have done something that he approved of, yeah, there would be a reward. On one occasion, a wonderful moment, uh, uh, a young woman of about 
17 or 18, came in with her mother, and uh, he took a very brief history. Uh, and then, then he sent her to the examining room, and he said, now one of you can have the privilege of going to see this young woman, if you can tell me who she is. And I knew who she was, because I'd seen her playing her cello in the Albert Hall or the Festival Hall, Festival, I think it was. Her name was Jacqueline Dupre, one of the greatest cellists of the 20th century, who subsequently got uh, MS, but uh, she didn't have MS on that day. She had a very simple problem uh, that was dealt with. But I got to talk to her, take the history and examine her and her mother, because I knew who she was. And uh, you could go to him with a serious question, and he would give you time. That's what real teachers do. Uh, they're not bothered whether you have gone through a curriculum put together by people who long since have forgotten what it's like to be where you are now. Um, you don't want the, the best people in the world writing the curriculum in one sense unless they've, they've got a real sense of what are the fundamentals that you must understand if you're going to do any good. Uh, but since everything in science has a deep requirement for mathematics and there are a lot of people who have no mathematical skills whatsoever that are in medicine and other areas, so they download something from the net. That's, that's problematic. So uh, our education system needs to have a reshake. Uh, I mean, if it was a few years ago that we started including ethics in the course. And my immediate response was I was not asked to ha take, take part in this course, of course. Um, I was known as some sort of loose cannon. And I said, well, to the dean that was, uh, uh, I happened to meet, meet him. He was a nice man. I liked him. And uh, a cocktail party, and we were chatting. I said, I see you're starting an ethics course. Uh, yeah, of course, it, it won't make students ethical. You realise that, don't you? He said, of course it will. I said, no, no, it won't. Uh, the man that you are importing from the philosophy department uh, to be the intellectual head of that programme, I know a little bit about him. I'm probably the only member of your faculty who has lunch with a philosopher every week. Um, and this man uh, is... Uh, Yes, he calls himself an ethicist, but he certainly doesn't practice ethics. He has a very bad reputation in the department, and there's considerable concern that he's probably abusing students. Uh, but he's perfectly competent at what's written in the ethical literature, but he won't model ethics. Ethics lectures may turn you into an amateur ethicist. They don't make you ethical. What makes you ethical, or who makes you ethical primarily, are the people who bring you up. Uh, your mum and dad are going to be uh, in your ear for the rest of your life, and hopefully they will have modelled for you what ethics should be. Bringing up a child in the fear and nurture of the Lord is the way you should go, but uh, I think this course will not achieve anything. The dean said, well, what would you do? I said, well, I happen to know that in this year's course I, there's no one who's read any Dostoevsky. Now, that is an ethical disaster. He said, what would you do? Well, uh, people are running uh, good courses now uh, on literature that 
could be helpful to a doctor. Uh, I think they should be introduced to some of the great writers that they haven't met who deal with the issues of life and death, justice, injustice, suffering. Uh, ordinary mortals like you and me can't do that anywhere near like the greats of literature do it. He said, well, you better start a course then. So I found myself with a, a course which uh, medical humanities, which I enjoyed. Um, and that did challenge the students to, and they, they read things that made them stop and think because uh, I would get students who would come later when they started their clinical, and they went from preclinical to clinical. I had more than a few students come over the years and say, am I going to be like them? Meaning the people who are now teaching them clinical medicine. They, they very quickly found that they didn't trust some of them. I said, you don't have to be. I'm glad you noticed the difference. Uh, we could talk about it. Uh, that's led one or two people into faith over the years. Uh, maybe more, I don't know. That's not my job. But bringing up a child in the fear and nurture of the Lord is not stupid. And the biblical view is very clear that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, not fear in being frightened psychologically, but fear in the sense that this is important and I might get it wrong, I need help. That's good fear. Uh, you can say if you don't have some fear about how well you do your job, certainly as a doctor, and therefore ask for help, uh, whenever it's necessary, you will be a bad doctor. Uh, nobody can know everything. So, especially a family practitioner, the first thing you want to know about them really is, do they have a good understanding of who's good at medicine in this city, in, in some detail? Who's the best at this or that? Are they the sort of person who will find that? Because if they, if they can't do that, that's one aspect of them that you... you you need every now and again, and you have to do it in other ways. Nowadays, you can <coughs> look up many things, but many of the things you look up are based on uh, credentialing and pol politics rather than competence. Um, the very best, <coughs> excuse me, uh, the very best people often don't have the best bedside manner because they become very quickly uh, focused on what they're trying to sort out at one stage at least. When what you need is technical, you want technical competence above all else. Um, that, especially with new procedures, is important. The people who first do procedures don't usually in the end turn out to be the best technicians for that procedure. So um, AI uh, doesn't deal with any of these things as far as I can see, but it is going to rule the world. Now, it, it will certainly force a change in education because uh, everything that comes to you in written form that they have any time for will be processed through AI. Now, at the moment, it, it would be easy to pick it up. If you read a piece from a student today that they've written themselves, there will be several grammatical and spelling errors. AI doesn't make those errors. 
He makes a few uh, rather interesting ones. I haven't spent enough time on it yet. Somebody else will be doing so. And by the way, John Lennox has written a book on this called 2084. Um, I haven't yet got it, so I haven't yet read it. When I have read it, I'll probably say some more about this. Uh, I've listened to him on YouTube. Um, uh, also, Douglas Murray uh, on YouTube is concerned about it and worth listening to. But uh, certainly you will not be able to use assignments to evaluate. You'll get basically the same answer from everybody because why wouldn't they do that? For writing formal letters that need to come up every now and again, well, all you need is to say letter of and have a category and you'll get one from ChatGPT. Uh, and it'll be perfectly reasonable as long as it's a very practical sort of thing. Now, when you're writing about character, it obviously can't do that. You can't get somebody's character from the way they write because the people I trust, I, I would put at the top of my list of ethical people I trusted, some of them never learned to write because they, they're in Africa. That doesn't mean I don't know what their character's like. Somebody who will stand between two tribal groups where one is threatening to kill the other and stop it. He's got courage. Uh, uh, we don't have space in our world for evaluating that. And we wonder why our politicians are so self-serving. Uh, if we were properly brought up, we would remember what uh, Plato said, that if you wish to rule, you shouldn't be allowed to. The people who rule must be bullied into doing it. Now, within the church, we ought to be doing that. When you see somebody who is shrewd and a good Christian and busy with the family, but you want them to be on the education committee for your local district, where they will not take no for an answer and they will not allow nonsense. They'll probably be manipulated out at some point, but we've got plenty of people around. We should cycle through and... The bottom line is, not only do we want you to do this, we are going to support you so that you can use us as your network. The Jews have done this for years. That's why they've got Jewish people in all the important places, because they know they're always going to be a minority. They've learned how to live as a minority. We need to follow their model. They've got it right. A good, smart Jewish kid doesn't have to bother about the cost of his education. The synagogue will pick it up if it's a good synagogue, but they will play a role in which direction he goes so that he ends up in a position that will be important to the Jewish community. That's not wrong. That's good politics. Um, but there we are. Uh, instead, we are pushed into political nonsense like multicultural medicine. It, it's, it's a contradiction in terms. Uh, you cannot find a multicultural patient. Nobody is. You can't have multiple cultures. You have a culture, which is your culture. Now, it's going to draw from wherever you've been, so it may have components that come from different places. But your job as a physician, certainly in the normal case, you've got to find out what your patient believes because it plays a role. Uh, if somebody is an atheist, you don't start talking about Christianity, they've got to ask the questions. Uh, each religion has strengths and weaknesses. 
Fatalism really has no place for medicine as we know it. If it if Enshallah is true and everything is the will of Allah and opposing the will of Allah is wrong, why are you interfering in this patient's life? There's a conflict there and that will cause problems. So we need to think about that. Another area in which AI is going to have a major impact is the economy. Now, I've seen in embryo what, how disastrous this can be and Trump amazingly understood it to a degree as well. I remember when I was still, I guess it was late high school. I, I, I'd have to check it up. But um, when I was younger, a toolmaker was the peak performer in the working class in Britain, where the class system kept you out of the professions. So the highest attainment for a working man was to be the man who made the tools for other people to make other things. Ah, my grandfather was one such and several of my uncles who made things to very high levels of precision, as high as the human can achieve. And they knew when they'd done it, they couldn't always tell you how they knew. Now, but once computer-assisted design came along, working to a ten-thousandth of an inch, which is what a man could do, just about, uh, is nothing now uh, an ordinary production car has finer tolerances than a Rolls-Royce had. Not put together in the same way, but the actual engineering bits are engineered to very high tolerances. Uh, so within weeks of it being apparent that you could do this with machinery, the whole of the production line in, say, the Austin Motor Company, which was nearby where I grew up, where hundreds of men were employed in the tool-making area, they were gone almost overnight. Their career didn't exist anymore, perhaps one or two specialists, that's it. So once there are things that we have dominated by our own human capacities, and then they can be defined in a way where uh, technology can come in and do a better job, then it's going to happen. When the only thing you could do for tuberculosis was some sort of uh, antigenic approach, people developed all sorts of skills with, re with relation to tuberculosis. And those skills were of no value once we got the anti-tuberculous drugs in the late 40s, early 50s. The, the skills weren't needed anymore, so they're gone. Um, you won't find a doctor, uh, probably pushing it a little bit, but you won't find a resident who knows why they put their hand on the chest and ask somebody to say 99 in a deep voice. It actually is still very useful in Africa, uh, but they don't know why they're doing it. It's a gesture to the past and it has no practical value. Uh, they'll stop doing it. They're, they're not carrying their stethoscopes anymore. They've acknowledged that Compared to other means, they're just guessing tubes. They still wear them as a kind of symbol. So, uh, but as toolmakers went, so any job that can be thoroughly automated is not going to require the working force that it did before. This is going to have a huge impact on the economy of the working class. 
Trump understood that the blue-collar people had been shafted since the 1950s and they'd given up on politics and weren't voting. And the, the way he won you know, his election was that he went after the people who hadn't voted in the previous elections and told them, this is your chance. And they believed him, and they still do. But I don't know whether he's got the smarts to, uh, or knows the people who have the smarts, to think about how we're going to navigate our way through this next process. I I'm not an economist. I'd love to talk to Tom Sowell about this, but I'm never going to get anywhere near him. But I hope he's thinking about it and will say something about it soon. So that the whole economic basis of our society, we're going to have a lot of people who are unemployable uh, as it stands at the moment. But we know very well that men in particular who are not employed are very dangerous. Um we need employment. We need the dignity of work. And I don't think we talk about it at all seriously. So, in summary, it's uh, those who uh, don't have my, my eternal hopes. Uh, Douglas Murray says uh, AI is out of control. Uh, we may put the pause, hit the pause button in the West, but China won't. They can already recognize you... Uh, with a rear view from your gate alone uh, by AI. They can certainly do it by voice prints. The temptation to the bureaucratic society to have total control is going to be overwhelming, and how we fight back on that, he hasn't a clue. Um, So we're going to live with the uncertainty of what is happening at the moment. But it can't be stopped. We have to work out what we're going to do about it and what price we're prepared to pay. Thank you, Dr. John. Thank you guys all for listening. Hope you guys appreciate this podcast and we'll see you guys next week.